there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. As you reflect back on your life, what decision did you make as a single woman, not including your decision to follow Christ? Do you feel shaped your life and is still relevant in your Christian walk today? Very good question and very easy to answer. Yes, I did make, I did make a decision for Christ when I was 10, which was a public decision. I probably had made a decision at my mother's knee when I was four or five, but I don't remember that. But when I was 12, I came across Betty Scott Stamm's prayer which I've quoted many, many times. She was a woman who visited in our home when she was on her way to China as a missionary. She was going to China to marry her fiance, John Stamm, who was already there. They were both graduates of Moody Bible Institute. And when I was eight years old, she had visited in our home, I think, when I was about four. When I was eight, my father came home from Philadelphia with a newspaper with a picture of Betty and John Stamm on the front page and a picture of a Chinese rice basket with a little baby's face sticking out of it. The story that went along with those pictures was that John and Betty Stam had been captured by Chinese communists and beheaded. And this baby had been rescued, their child, who was just a few months old at the time. Uh, they had been married a little bit less than a year. And so this was their one and only child who was rescued by a Chinese pastor. That made a tremendous impression, as you can imagine, on my eight-year-old mind that this lady who had sat at our dinner table had her head chopped off. But when I was 12, I came across her prayer of commitment, and I made that my prayer of commitment, and it has been always the same. I copied it into my Bible when I was 12, and I just want to put in a parenthesis here. Parents, do not underestimate the spiritual discernment of your children. They probably are not very articulate about it, and I don't remember whether I said anything to my parents about this or whether they would have believed me if I told them that this really was the prayer of my life. But there's no question in my mind that I meant every word of it. And the prayer is this, Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt, and work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. And you can imagine the impact of those three words, at any cost, finding that that was the prayer of Betty Scott Stamm, not having she couldn't possibly have had any idea what the cost was going to be, nor does any of us know when we make up our minds to follow Christ what the cost will be. There will be a cost, of course, because he said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to give up your right to yourself, and that costs us everything, and take up the cross, and that means suffering. So that has certainly shaped my life. Did you ever get your Bible back that you lost on the airplane? No. I had a New Testament that had 19 years worth of notes in it, and 
I think I was reading it when the stewardess brought my dinner, you know, so I quickly put the tray down and put the book in my lap. I think this is what must have happened. And ate my dinner and forgot all about the book, and I think it probably slid down between the seat and the bulkhead. And of course, I wrote to Delta Airlines. I told them exactly which flight it was, which seat it was, but I imagine lots of books get left on the airplanes and they go into the trash bag. Does the Lord call someone to remain single? Yes, of course. He has called tens of thousands, probably millions of people to remain single. And one shining example in 20th century to me would be Amy Carmichael. She was convinced before she was 20 that God was calling her to be single. And I thought very likely that God would want me to be single. I thought it would be a miracle if I got married at all. Certainly never imagined that I would be married more than once. <clears throat> but this person says, I am 21 and have no desire to have a boyfriend or to get into a relationship. Well, I think that's wonderful. You are a rare female. How do I know if the Lord has called me to remain single or if I'm just afraid of relationships? Well, I can't answer the second part of that. I don't know if you're afraid of relationships, but I would just comfort you by saying this, that since you are single on this particular Saturday night, then God has called you to be single up until tonight. <laughs> I don't think you need to know tonight whether God ever is going to give you a husband. I really don't think you need to know that. Amy Carmichael seemed to know that before she was 20, but I think it's rather rare for people to have a deep and sure confidence that God is calling them to remain single. So I wouldn't give it a second thought. You are single. If God wants you to be married, God knows how to deliver you from your fear of relationships, if that's what you have. That might just be a psychological term that you've latched onto and you think, oh, well, maybe that's me. You know, I better go get some counseling on this. Forget it. When your husband was killed, what did the Lord do to prepare you for it? Well, some of you may have heard my talks on my first year as a missionary. I could spend a, lot of, a long time answering this question, and this person has written three questions on this one piece of paper. So I won't tell you one-tenth of all the things that the Lord did to prepare me for it, but one of the things certainly was that I read missionary biographies. I was raised on them. We lived, ate, breathed, talked missionaries constantly. We went to missionary meetings. We looked at missionary slides. We read, read missionary biographies. And I knew that people get killed. So there was nothing surprising about it. Shocking, yes, because we always think it won't happen to me. But the story of John and Betty Stamm was very deeply ingrained in my heart. So that was one preparation. And then in my very first year as a missionary in Ecuador, God allowed three major blows to my faith to take place. I had not yet been a jungle missionary for a whole year when my informant was murdered. The station on which Jim Elliott had been working, by that time he was my fiance, he was way over on the other side of the Andes, but the station on which he had been working was completely demolished by a flood. And all of my language work of that year, the reduction to writing of the Colorado Indian language, was stolen. So God allowed a murder, a flood, and a robbery. Each of them left me reeling, of course, and saying, why, Lord? And he never gave me any explanations. He just said what he always says, trust me. 
trust me. Someday you'll know, but you don't need to know now. But those were the kindergarten lessons preparing me for the death of my husband, which came a little more than two years after that. Did you sense it in the spirit before you actually knew in the flesh? No, I would not say I had any premonitions of Jim's being killed. We were just being very realistic. I'm not a person who has visions, premonitions, or hears voices. I really don't expect that. I don't get handwriting on the wall, and I don't get pillars of fire and stars of Bethlehem. <laughs> but I certainly knew what the possibilities were. Jim and I talked very candidly for many hours about what, we, what I was supposed to do if he didn't come back. And all five of the widows, we discussed this after the death of our husbands, and, and each of us had been just as upfront about the possibilities. So there wasn't, it wasn't as though we had our minds closed to that possibility. Perhaps you plan to share this already, but I'm interested to know of the Lord's dealings to bring you to the place where you were willing to go to those people. Again, that was a very simple thing. I could not imagine that God would want me to go to those people because I couldn't imagine that it could ever happen. I didn't have that kind of faith. I simply said, Lord, if there is, by any chance, ever, somehow, <laughs> the chance for me to go to the Alcas, I'm available. Not because I wanted to go, particularly. I had more than enough to do on my Quechua station because Jim and I had been working there together and had had all that the two of us could do. And now that Jim was gone, I was trying to do all of it. So it wasn't as though I was looking for something else to do, and I had a very comfortable house that Jim had built. But because of the commitment that I had made when I was 12 years old, I gave up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. So Lord, if it could be in your will, if it should happen to be in your will for me to go to the Alcas, I'm available. Feeling very safe that God was not going to ask anything so ridiculous. <laughs> You know, we, we pray prayers sometimes which we have no intention that God should answer. And, you know, God had some amazing things in, up his sleeve, and I did, a year and a half after the death of the men, make contact with two Alcas. In one of your books, you tell that Jim had learned the Alca language from a young lady that had left the tribe, and that some of the words and phrases were not the correct interpretations. Do you believe or know if the language that Jim and the others used contributed to the Alka's hostile response to their appearance? The answer is no. They did not learn another language. They learned about three phrases. And they had gotten them from a woman named Dayuma who lived on an hacienda within about six hours walk of our station. And Dayuma had been out of her tribe for 12 or 15 years by that time. She had forgotten a great deal of Alka she had picked up Quechua, so she was using Quechua practically all the time. So what the men got from, their, from, from her, they did not get very accurately. I know what the motive was in the killing because when I got to know the men who had done the killing, I was able to ask them the questions that had been burning in my mind for those three years by that time. Why did you do it? And the answer was very simple. They thought the missionaries were cannibals. So they really did believe that the missionaries were coming to eat them. It wasn't hostility. It was not bloodthirst. It was just fear. 
is a woman free to remarry after being divorced by her husband? Now there's one of those real zingers. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. There are scriptures which would indicate that maybe she is and maybe she isn't. I would recommend for you Jay Adams' book, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. He goes into the subject quite thoroughly. He is a theologian. I'm not, but I do not know what to say to that question. Talk about the importance of prayer in our children's lives. Thank you for that one. That's a very good question. And you must start from day one praying over that child, with that child, for that child. I happened to be with Valerie when her first child was born, and the day they brought him home from the hospital, Walt decided that they were going to start family prayers. And it was chaos. Of course, our ancient foe was right there, putting it into the head of that tiny infant to scream when they were trying to read the Bible and pray. And I can remember after two or three tries, Walt just shutting the Bible and sliding it across the dining room table and saying, there's no way we can do this. Well, I encouraged him to keep on, and I know my father just kept on very quietly. It didn't make any difference what age we were. We were all included in family prayers. I, being number two of six, remember very well when the others were born and were small and interruptive. But um, don't let that put you off. I think it's very important to teach your children thanksgiving, they can certainly learn to say, thank you, God, for this nice bed. Thank you for mommy and daddy. Thank you for food we've had. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for my new skates or whatever. You can teach your children to say, I'm sorry, God, and confess their sins. So you've got Thanksgiving. You have confession. You can teach them petition. Lord, please help me to be nicer to my little sister. And intercession. And that might be illustrated by my brother Tom's praying that his sister Ginny would always say, yes, Tommy, you can have it. <laughs> that um, is not exactly what I mean by intercession. <laughs> what, ty what type of standards should I set for dating? Well, I wish I knew whether this were a man or a woman. I will assume it's a woman, because men hardly ever ask any questions of that sort. <laughs> I wrote a book called Passion and Purity, and it just irritates the stew out of me that people come up and pick up this book, and they read the title on the, on the front cover, and they say, oh, this would be a great book for my daughter, or my sister, or my fiancé, or my girlfriend. And I want to say, and how many does it take to tango? Do you guys not have any passion? Or are you not interested in purity? I mean, where do we get this idea that anything that has to do with sexual purity is for women? Well, the sad thing is we get it because the world has always had a double standard. Men can do anything they want to, but every man in the world, I don't care how many people he slept with, wants a virgin for a wife. Where are they going to come from? Where in the world are we going to find these virgins? Very simple rule my mother gave me when I was 13. She said, always keep them at arm's length and never chase boys. Now, of course, I've dealt with this question in Passion and Purity, also in, in the book on masculinity called The Mark of a Man. 
and in Let Me Be a Woman, which is on femininity. The most rudimentary rules would, would be not only keep them at arm's length, but keep your clothes on and your hands off. And you will never find yourself pregnant by mistake. It's just not going to happen. I have piles of letters from young people, from women, you know, telling me, well, I lost my virginity. Nobody loses their virginity. They give it away. We pray, lead us not into temptation, and we walk straight into it. The girl goes to the guy's dormitory room in the, at university. And then she writes to me and writes me 16 pages telling me how wonderful this guy was and what a wonderful Christian he was and how they'd broken up about six times and finally she couldn't stand it. And she said, can I talk to you just one more time? So she went to his bedroom. And she says, I don't know how it happened. And of course I can say it always happens the same way. There's nothing new under the sun. But recently I talked to a woman who had a very good idea. I, I want to just eliminate dating because it's not working. It's leading to all kinds of chaos and it establishes, this I think is what is so dangerous about dating in today's world. Now in my time, a thousand years ago, dating was a very different thing. I hardly had any dates, but when I did, it was perfectly clear who was asking whom. There was no such thing as equality and interchangeability. The boy asked the girl, which means that the boy is going to decide where he's taking her, and the boy is going to pick up the tab. And if it's a boy who's going to take me out, he's going to bring me home when my father tells him he has to have me home. I mean, I think I had one date when I was about in the eighth grade and hardly any since then, but uh, we did just exactly that. This boy rang the doorbell, and I brought him into the living room. He was introduced to my parents, and my father said, now I want you to bring her home at such and such a time. But the problem nowadays is that dating in almost invariably and very purposefully leads to intimacy. Emotional intimacy starts. It starts with emotional intimacy, an emotional striptease. And what does emotional intimacy lead to then? Well, physical intimacy, of course. And I have just piles and piles of letters from both men and women kicking themselves around the block, telling me how they hate themselves, how filthy they feel, how they wish they hadn't done it, and they didn't know how it happened. So I just say, well, let's, let's forget about dating, because dating is a very modern innovation. I see some people here that look as though they might be as old as I am, and I'm going to be 80 in 12 more years. <laughs> I mean, you, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but we know that dating was a very different thing. And if you establish a pattern of intimacy and then breakup, then the next one is intimacy and breakup, intimacy and breakup, intimacy and breakup. And what happens when they get married? Intimacy and breakup. And so we've got divorces just epidemic across the country. An interesting idea, which hadn't crossed my mind, from one very fine young woman that I talked with some time ago. She said, I will not go out with a man except for lunch. Now, I think that's a very good idea. If you're going to date at all, if you really think that it's important to get to know this man on a one-to-one -one basis, let it be at lunchtime. 
and then you go back to work or you go home and he goes back to work and there's no danger whatsoever of a backseat of a car or coming home late and inviting him in for a cup of coffee or whatever, the things which always lead to the intimacy and breakup sort of thing. How can I tell if, well, let me tell you one more thing which I think is extremely important about this dating thing. I want to urge you old folks to get involved here. Get involved in your church. Make it, a, make it known that you who are an older, wiser, godly person are interested in these young people and in, their, in helping them to find godly spouses. Now I know that one, of, one objection which immediately comes is they don't want to listen to us. There are those who do, I know, because I get their letters. And I believe in every church there are young people who would be willing to listen. And just last week I was in Atlanta and I asked this question in a huge audience. I said, how many of you young people would be willing to listen to the advice and counsel and caution of older men and women? And there were hundreds of hands. And I said, and how many of you older men and women would be willing to make yourselves available? Just let it be known in a quiet way. I'm here. I'll be happy to pray with you. And then I say to the young people, listen to what they tell you. If you're dating somebody that they think is a very poor choice, you better be careful. And if you aren't dating anybody and you wish you were, ask them for advice as to who they think might be a good choice. Now I'm talking about men now. Don't, women are not to go out looking for good choices. You're to pray and wait and trust God. <laughs> but if you men are just on square one, not knowing what in the world to do, it's very possible that somebody might give you a suggestion. Oh, well, you're matchmaking. And what is wrong with that? <laughs> According to the Bible, that's the way it was. And that's the way it's been through practically all of human history. Among all tribes and peoples, it has been a third party involved. So I think we need to go back to that. Now, how can I tell if the person I'm dating is someone God would want me to date? Well, I don't know if God wants you to date, period. <laughs> but character, <clears throat> excuse me, character is what to look for. And I did not have one date with Jim Elliott before I knew what kind of character was in this man. How did I know? Well, how did Abraham's servant know what kind of a woman to choose for Isaac's wife? He was sent on that errand, you remember. And he went to the one place in the village where it was proper to, to watch the women which was the village well. He could stand at a distance and it says he prayed silently and watched quietly. And he saw a beautiful woman, woman, which indicates that God doesn't mind if you look at physical beauty and one woman who might look like a witch to somebody else looks like a dream of beauty to, some, to somebody else. So God knows how to show you the right woman. He also saw that she was a hard worker, she was gracious, she was polite, she was unselfish. She went the second mile and offered even to draw water for his camels. Now, I can't even imagine how she did that because I've heard that a camel can drink 10 gallons of water and he had 10 camels. That's a lot of trips up and down the well. With, But anyway, uh, God led him to the right woman and God does know how to lead you to the right woman. I knew that Jim Elliot was a man of integrity, 
I knew he was serious about his use of time because I watched him in the dining hall lines memorizing Greek verbs and scripture verses. I knew that he was a very conscientious student because his name was read out in all the honors convocations, not because he was brilliant, but because he worked hard. He buffeted his body on the wrestling mat. He was a champion wrestler, and when I asked him why he did it, he said, because I buffet my body as Paul did in order to bring it under subjection, lest, having preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. He was a campus clown, everybody knew that, and I couldn't imagine ever marrying somebody that didn't have a sense of humor. So there were a whole lot of things about him that were common knowledge. I had no private insights. All of these things convinced me that is the kind of a man I would love to marry. I didn't think I had a chance with Jim Elliott himself, but I thought he's got everything that I'm looking for. And people have asked me, what was it that you saw in Lars Grin? And I can tell you that Lars Grin is a man with a servant heart. He is always thoughtful about other people, always serving, always willing to be behind the scenes. And you can imagine it's, it's not an easy position that he has, not by any means. Some of the guys want to know if it is okay to have the girlfriend's picture on the wall. I wonder if the girl wrote this. But I certainly can't see anything in the world wrong with having a girl's picture on the wall, provided she's properly clothed and all that. <laughs> My roommate in Bible school was very interested in my brother Dave, and Dave was a very close friend of Jim Elliott's. Well, we happened to have one little black and white snapshot of Dave and Jim, and so we put it up on our desk in Bible school. We always argued with each other as to whose it was. She told me it was mine, and I told her it was hers, because we were trying to say that we weren't really interested in these people, but <laughs> we had the picture there, and incidentally, she did marry my brother. What advice would you give to a pastor's wife concerning standing behind your husband? Well, the same advice that I'd give to every woman who has a husband, that the most powerful weapons we have are prayer and a gentle and quiet spirit. And those things do not come naturally. You are to be a helper to your husband. That was God's original purpose. That defines for us our place in the world and in a marriage and in a church. We are to be helpers. We are not created to be the leaders or those in authority. God has given us the freedom from having to take authority and from having to make the final decisions. And it's such a relief to me that, to know that the buck doesn't stop at my desk. It stops at Lars's desk. So I am to be a helper to him, and I am to have a gentle and quiet spirit, and you know you're not looking at somebody that was born with any of that. I was not born with a gentle and quiet spirit, and I'm still working on that. But you have to stand behind your husband, and I suppose the most painful thing for a pastor's wife is when her husband gets criticized. I know that from my daughter, she is a pastor's wife, and that, of course, is just very, very painful for both of you. And you have to always be loyal to him and keep your mouth shut, be very, very careful what you say. Would you do it all over again with the pain and heartache you went through? How old were you when you felt God's call on your life? What advice can you give to young people 
who feel God's calling. I would say yes to the first question. I certainly would do it all over again. I was, as I said, 10 years old when I made a profession of faith and 12 when I made a commitment that Jesus was to be Lord of my life. And the advice that I would give to young people who feel that God is calling you is do what you know God wants you to do today. God will show you tomorrow what he wants you to do. And it's one step at a time. Most of my problems with guidance have been because I want God to tell me everything that's going to happen in a nice, neat preview of coming attractions. And he doesn't do that. He says, you stick with this job that I've given you today. And on this particular day, the assignment was to get from Chicago to St. Louis and from St. Louis to Carbondale. That's all I know. As far as I know, I'm supposed to talk again tomorrow in Sunday school. But that's not my business right now. And it is the faithful doing of today's tasks, whatever they may be, that qualifies you and prepares you for tomorrow's. When Jim died, I didn't have any idea how in the world I was going to run this station or what in the world to do. All I know is every day, God told me what to do showed me what to do. The Indians came to the door. I didn't have to get down on my knees and pray, shall I serve them? Of course I had to serve them. My daughter would cry, am I supposed to feed her? Yes, these are just, these are the basic things, duties. Duty is about 99% of the will of God. It's not very often that there's something mysterious that we don't know what to do about. If it is, then you wait, of course. Why did the Alcas kill Jim? I told you because they thought he was a cannibal. What did the plane have to do with the death of Jim? The five men went into Alca territory one by one in Nate Saint's little Piper Cub plane. And Nate landed them on a beach one by one. They set up a treehouse. They had apparently a friendly contact five days later. And then two days after that, they were all speared to death. So of course, the plane was left sitting on the beach. And I'm sure that many of you have heard that last spring, many parts of that plane came to light again because the jungle rivers changed course radically and this, the parts had sunk into the sand and when the river changed course again, then they appeared. I was there in 1960, four years after the men were killed. I was taken there by two of the Indians who had done the killing. They showed me the beach, they said there's the tree that they had the treehouse in, but they said, we chopped it down because we wanted to get rid of everything that had to do with these enemies. And he said they were buried back there, but probably the river has come up and taken the bodies away by this time. So what is what was called Palm Beach is certainly not there in any form that it ever was. And it has disappeared over and over again. But obviously the plane didn't have anything to do with the Indians killing the men. It was just that that was their method of transportation and getting there. Where is the line drawn between mercy killing and medicating a terminally ill patient in extreme pain? I don't know. The last thing says, Elizabeth, thanks for your obedience to the Lord's calling. Thanks for the hug. And thank you for coming. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, 
The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.